Welcome to another episode of How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne. I'm here again today with Benjamin Kant. How are we doing, Ben? Nate, doing well. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, arguably one of the most iconic chunks of scripture uh, known inside and outside the church. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, we referenced it last week. I, hopefully listeners have been waiting this entire week. I mean, <laughs> sure, there was Thanksgiving and time with family and friends, but really in the back of their mind, they're like, man, when's that Sermon on the Mount episode going to drop? Yeah, that's right. It wasn't salivating over the turkey. It yeah. was salivating over the Sermon on the Mount yeah. podcast episode. So Nate, help us, uh, give us some context for this. What What's Jesus doing? Um, maybe even why is this such a... Uh, a monumental kind of teaching of Jesus's help us get some context for this. Yeah. So let's, we, we gave a little bit of it in our last episode, just to refresh um, and even talk about our week's reading. So we read Matthew three through seven. And so in, in three, we kind of get the beginning of Jesus ministry. We get his baptism in chapter four, we get his temptation in the wilderness. And if we're, if we're reading canonically, a thing that we talked about, last week, or if someone, I, I know a common thing for people when they're first reading the Bible is they just read the New Testament and you just start there. Uh, it's often an evangelistic tool, give someone a little pocket New Testament, they start reading on the first page. And so if that's what you're doing, this is really Jesus's first sermon. Mm. It's, I think it's his longest mm. in Matthew. It's three chapters. Mm -hmm. They're not short chapters. So it's his first sermon. It feels epic. He goes up on a mountain. He sits down. The disciples are there. It's got the Beatitudes that's kind of seeped into popular culture in mm. a lot of different sort of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but we made the, the kind of structural um, observation last week that people should keep in mind is there's five sermons in Matthew, and that's probably not a coincidence that there's five sermons in Matthew. There's five books of Moses. Mm -hmm. Jesus has always been, already been kind of presented as a new Moses. He mm -hmm. escapes an evil king who's trying to kill Hebrew babies. Mm -hmm. He comes up out of Egypt. He's, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of connections that he is the prophet that's promised in Deuteronomy, who's going to be greater than Moses. He's here. Matthew wants us to see that. What, what easier way to do that than to have him go up a mountain? Yeah, that's good. And so he goes up on the mountain. Um, we should note, though, that doesn't make him in some sense like a new Moses. It actually puts him in a different posture. The disciples are actually like Moses in this sense, because they're the ones who have gone up on the mountain to receive the word of God. Mm. Jesus is now the word in flesh. Mm -hmm. So he's the word that they're receiving, and then they get sent out as mm. these pro apostles, prophets, teachers. Mm. So that's kind of our big picture structural. So if, if Jesus was the new Moses merely... Uh, he would have gone up the mountain, received the teaching, and come back down to give it to the disciples. Yeah. But it says, actually, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him up on the mountain. Yeah. And so he's he's inviting them in, um, and just like the Lord in, in Exodus invited Moses up to the mountain to, to give him the law, now Jesus is the one inviting his disciples up on the mountain. Yeah. And an interesting thing in that story that you mentioned in Exodus is Israel was invited up the mountain and they said, no, it's too scary. We'd rather not. And yeah, we'd rather not. Well, you know, hard pass on that. <laughs> That's right. And so that is, it's a, it's a repetition of an earlier story in the Bible, but it's a, there's continuity and discontinuity, mm -hmm. similar, but different mm -hmm. stakes have been raised. Something new is happening. Um, and we, we even see that at the end here. Um, we mentioned when, when we, before we were recording Matthew's little parenthetical notes. So mm -hmm. we, we read the first one. And then when you get to the end of chapter 7, 
when he, Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Mm. First, I think this is Throwing the first roasting major, of major the scribes. Shade. Yeah, yeah, major shade on the th- scribes there. <laughs> Tough look for the scribes there. Um, so it, there's, and it is an epic three chapters. There's a reason it's it's, it, it's had the staying power mm-hmm. that it's had. Um, but as we were kind of looking at it, we talked about let's let's think about repetition as a mm. principle as we we're talking about how to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious. So we'll talk about three levels of repetition. And you're gonna you're gonna help us out on that third deep level. Mm-hmm. Um, first level is things that are very obviously symmetrical. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are in the Beatitudes. So mm-hmm. You can see that there's okay. All these people are blessed. There must be some similarities to these. There must be some overlap. These are characteristics of the blessed people. Mm-hmm. Um, the blessed people are the ones who are living the good life in the fullest sense of the term. But mm-hmm. it's not like what you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see that level of repetition. And then we were, you, you might notice chapter 5, uh, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Law and prophets, there is shorthand for the Old Testament. Yeah. The Hebrew Bible. Yeah. We, uh, he's leaving off the writings, but there's a sense. And for listeners that aren't aware, the way the Old Testament's understood, if you don't call it the Old Testament, you call it the Tanakh, mm. the Torah the Nevaim and the Ketavim, and mm-hmm. that's Torah is law, Nevaim is prophets, Ketavim is writings. Mm-hmm. So it's their three categories for their scriptures. Mm-hmm. So he didn't come to get rid of those, he came to fulfill them. And we would take fulfill in that sense as fill out, make more comprehensible, mm-hmm. in some sense raise the stakes. Mm-hmm. So right after this, he doesn't go through and just tell everyone the Ten Commandments are canceled, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Don't have to do those anymore. He mm-hmm. actually more or less reaffirms all of the second panel of the law, how to treat other people, mm-hmm. but then raises the stakes. Yeah. You know, you shall not murder, but anyone who's angry with his brother is mm-hmm. liable to judgment. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, it's, it's it's pretty easy to not accidentally murder someone. Mm-hmm. It's pretty difficult to expunge all hatred from your heart for anyone. Yeah, that's right. So uh, and he says with lust, you know, you, you don't accidentally commit adultery, but he says everyone that looks with a lustful intent has already mm-hmm. committed adultery. And it's like, oh, that's kind of, mm-hmm. it's probably most people at this point. Yeah. Um, and so he just kind of goes through and so he's repeating. So it's it's a different kind of repetition. It's not quite as obvious, but he's taking things in the Old Testament, repeating them, nuancing them, Mm -hmm. continuity, discontinuity. But this deeper level of repetition, which is something, this is one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it, Mm -hmm. but it really only comes with reading scripture slowly and carefully. You notice phrases repeated over and over. And so you were... You were telling me before we started recording, you had that experience with chapter six. And Mm -hmm. so we call this maybe deep repetition where Mm -hmm. it's it's on the surface, but the structure doesn't throw it out there. It's just, you have to actually see the phrase over and over and start thinking, why is this phrase used so many times? So tell us about what you noticed in chapter six. Yeah, this may have been last year, honestly, reading, uh, reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And I was reading chapter six and Right there in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in, who is in heaven. And then you go down to verse 4 and it says, 
and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then you go down to verse 6. It says, your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So we've got your father there. But then you get to the very famous words of the Lord's Prayer, our father in heaven. And then on and on and on, if you read through chapter 6 and underline every time this shows up, Jesus constantly is saying, your father in heaven, your father in heaven, your heavenly father, your father in secret, your father who sees in secret. And, and that's, it's really consolidated, the repetitions quite a bit in chapter 6. But then you can go back and actually see it in chapter 5 as well, like, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So then I just started putting a square in my Bible. I put a square around every time it said father, and then I would underline uh, wherever it said in and then the location kind of a thing. So the, our father, Jesus wants us to know, is in heaven, and our father is in secret. And so I'm thinking to myself, why does that matter so much? Like, I'm just paying attention to the repetition every time Jesus talks about your father, almost every time, it's your father in heaven, your father in secret. And I'm thinking, the location of God the Father really must matter to Jesus. Otherwise, mm. he wouldn't ca- keep saying in, 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 and then give his a location. So as I'm reading, I'm, I'm, I'm then now reading kind of backwards and forwards in, in chapters 5 and 7 and trying to understand, like, what is happening here? Something's going on. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really my curiosity's sp- uh, kind of peaked at this point. So I keep going, and we get to chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, I'll read, actually, verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, so treasure has to be in heaven now where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's, I think, the key. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, that's location, there your heart will be also, that's location. And so Jesus is giving us a principle here that if if your treasure is in secret or in heaven, it's safe, it's secure, it's it's going to create a, a type of righteousness in you. If your treasure is on earth or in public, if it's on earth, it could be taken from you. Mm. Uh, it's easily it's either easily lost. But if it's in public, then you're going to practice your righteousness before other people so that you might be seen by them. Yeah. And so this location really matters to Jesus, that, that the place where your heart is set, the place where your treasure is, is to be in heaven and in secret. And it will actually preserve you from a lot of pain, uh, namely losing your treasure, mm-hmm. letting moths or rust or thieves break in and steal or having people think that you're not that great when they see you performing in public. Yeah. And so I just, it, it kind of opened things up for me in a new way. And then you get into his teaching on anxiety and you realize, oh, wow, if my ang- if my life is set, if my treasure is set here on earth, I'm going to be profoundly anxious because anybody can take that stuff away from me. Mm-hmm. If, my, if my treasure is, is set in public rather than in secret, I'm constantly going to be anxious about what people think about me. And so... It makes sense, the flow now of how he moves from your father in heaven, your father in heaven, our father who are in heaven, as the Lord's prayer has it, how the flow moves from that to where your treasure is, there your heart will be also into, do not be anxious. Yeah. And so Jesus is really after your flourishing. He's after your blessedness, where we all, where this sermon begins, and he's going to do it in a really profound way, but you got to pay attention to the repetition. And when you do that, you begin to see more clearly what he's actually after and how all of this sermon is actually 
profoundly united together and and really well woven into a, a great sermon. Now he didn't have you know uh, an opening illustration with three points and a closing application. Yeah, uh, but he has some really really insightful ways in which he structured this sermon. Mm-hmm. I think that's so good to because especially today in our therapeutic culture, there's a, you can get caught up on this, don't be anxious. It's mm-hmm. like, well, that feels really cruel to tell someone with an anxiety disorder to not be anxious. That's right. Just don't do it. It's like, well, maybe what he's talking about here is a slightly different category of anxiety, mm-hmm. but also it makes way more sense if you think of the flow and you don't just pull out the one verse. Mm-hmm. It, well, and it's worth noting that anxiety, the word translated anxiety in the New Testament is also translated care. Or cares. Mm. And so why I think this is so significant is he's saying anxiety comes from caring. So you might care about too, something too much. So you might care some, about something too little. You might care about the right thing, but more than you ought. And, and so the real call here is to be careless in the care of the Father. I think that's actually what Jesus is getting at is that in if our Father who sees in secret, who is in heaven, truly cares about us, if we set our treasure on him, our anxiety levels will be decreased by that in certain ways. Mm. And I think that that's, that's clear. We could talk about presence in the present moment and how secular psychology is showing how present moment awareness is the only antidote to, to anxiety. And Jesus in this uh, section on anxiety constantly saying, hey, look at the birds. Hey, look at the lilies. Hey, don't care about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough cares for itself. Mm-hmm. Hey, consider the present moment. And so secular psychology is showing, oh, that's the only way that you could possibly deal with anxiety is by focusing on the present moment rather than the the, the anxiety trip that pulls you into the future. Yeah. And Jesus was saying it in his Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And we could even put a little more of a, a theological spin on that of um, your father who is in heaven only experiences the present moment. Mm. God does not, our father in heaven does not have a past or a future. He only mm-hmm. has the present. Yes. That's he doesn't good. get caught up. He, so by entering into the present moment, you're entering into this divine life mm. where your treasure should be found in the first place. That's really good. So, and as you were talking to me, it reminded me of something. Well, we should caution the listeners. We'll end with this, but this is very clearly bonus content. This is not what you've paid for in your subscription. That's right. Um, but it is a, it's a real quick example of how understanding how to read the Bible well can also help you make sense of pop culture mm-hmm. and help you make sense of other facets of our world. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've read the Harry Potter books, you'll know that verse the verses that we kind of landed on, 19 and 20, don't lay out for yourselves treasures on earth are very pivotal in book seven, I believe. Mm. Spoiler um, they alert. Are on, I, know, I, I feel like I can spoil it at this point. But <laughs> got like a decade. It's less obvious in the movies, um, but it is the key verse that kind of makes sense of a major part of the story. Mm. Um, Voldemort, the villain, uh, lays up for himself treasures. I can't believe you just said his name, but yeah. <laughs> carry on. Sorry, he who must not be named. Um has put his soul literally into these objects, mm. and uh, in one case a snake, but uh, Basculus. Sorry, it's, I'm I'm nerdy, but I'm not that nerdy. Um, and so, because they are they're private, some of them are hidden, but they are on Earth, so mm. they can be destroyed. Oh man! And so the key to destroying Voldemort is destroying all of the places where he's laid up treasure by putting oh, his soul come on, into mate. it. That'll preach right there. It'll preach. Well, the other part of it is Harry doesn't seem to have any interest in things. Mm. He instead puts his heart and soul into other people. So it's kind of a vertical, I mean, it's not, God is not in the story in some sense, even though there's Bible verses on tombstones, Mm. but there's a scene at the very beginning of the seventh book where all of his friends that he loves deeply take the polyjuice potion and become him. 
mm. visibly at least. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to kill Harry is to kill all of his friends too. Whoa. So he's laid up his treasure in relationships and loving people. Mm-hmm. Voldemort's laid up his treasure in things and possessions. Mm. And in the end, one of them gets destroyed. And I guess you'll have to watch the movie to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> not read Which, the book. <laughs> not read the book, yeah. Just, just skip to the eighth movie. It's, you know. That's good. Should have never been made, but it's yeah. a different story. <laughs> I love that. That's a really good way to to unpack that too. But it just it, it's it's one of those things. It's in the it's in that book. Rowling intended it. Rowling de- intended it to be interpretive to some degree. But having an understanding of how it functions in scripture gives you a better understanding of how it might function in her story. Mm-hmm. Now we we maybe put a little asterisks here at the end. I'm not sure if she intended everything that I just picked up out of that story, and it's not a ri- it's not an interpretation mm. original to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that you can draw such tight connections illustrates something true about this principle of yeah. where your treasure is, there your heart is, and if it's on earth in public or even if it's on earth in private, it's liable to destruction. That's good. That's right. Super helpful. We just did psychology and pop culture, and we're crushing this how that's, to read the Bible right. thing. That's right. Well, <laughs> next week we'll move on. We'll either we haven't decided yet. We're either going to talk about Matthew or Proverbs, but mm-hmm. we'll hopefully connect with you all again next week.